It was a winter's day in 1962. A young girl came home from school and handed a note to her father. Her father was the author, Roald Dahl. The note explained that there was a measles outbreak at the school. Within days, Dahl's daughter had developed a mild fever. He wrote about this. He said, Olivia, my eldest daughter, caught measles when she was seven years old. Roald Dahl's account of what happened next is read here by the Times science editor, Tom Whipple. As the illness took its usual course, I can remember reading to her often in bed and not feeling particularly alarmed by it. One morning, she was very well on the road to recovery. I was sitting on her bed showing her how to fashion little animals out of coloured pipe cleaners. And when it came to her turn to make one herself, I noticed that her fingers and her mind were not working together and she couldn't do anything. She had encephalitis. Are you feeling all right? I asked her. I feel all sleepy, she said. In an hour, she was unconscious. In 12 hours, she was dead. It wasn't until six years after Olivia Dull's death in 1968 that the first measles vaccine was introduced. It was followed in 1988 by MMR, a combined measles, mumps and rubella vaccine. And Roald Dahl became a big campaigner for the vaccine on the basis of that. When the MMR vaccine was introduced, Roald Dahl wrote, it really is almost a crime to allow your child to go unimmunized. It took another 30 years, but in 2017, the UK achieved measles elimination. The virus was no longer spreading in Britain. So, what on earth is going on now? Measles is back, and the West Midlands is at the centre of the surge. The West Midlands has had more than 200 cases since last year. But looking at the map of where children are missing MMR jabs, other cities are vulnerable to an outbreak too. Doctors are urging parents to make sure their children are protected. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, why measles is on the resurgence. My name is Tom Whipple and I am the science editor at The Times. And Tom, we're talking today about measles, which, you know, we thought had been eradicated and for a lot of people, you know, they won't ever have experienced it. So just remind us, what is measles? It is a viral disease. It is probably the most infectious respiratory virus we know of. So I think we're now all, I don't think we need a terribly big primer on the R number. We all know what the R number is. It's how many people you would, one infected person would spread the illness to. At the beginning of COVID, we were looking at an R number of two to three. With measles, you're 
15. It's absolutely massive. If you're in a room with someone who's infected and everyone else is not vaccinated and hasn't been infected, if they have no immunity, then you'd expect 90% plus of them to be infected. That really is huge. And if you're if you're suffering from measles, what is it you're experiencing? How does it feel? Measles begins as a cold. Um, so you get a fever, a high temperature, you get a runny nose, sneezing, cough. Then you start getting spots normally in your mouth and maybe on the inside of the cheeks. And then you get this rash that spreads all over your body. And for most people, it is just very unpleasant. The NHS estimates that about one in five children will end up needing a hospital visit. You will get about one in 3,000 to one in 5,000 kids who will die. And probably the most well-known example of this is Roald Dahl's daughter. The idea that it can be as serious as that, you know, the idea of a young child slipping away... That is why the vaccine became so popular and we thought we'd eradicate it. And yet it seems it's back. Tell us where and how. Yes, it's, so there's, So we have to be slightly careful of terminology. So eradication is dim, different from elimination. Ah. If, if you look at our measles stats, before the pandemic, which suppressed all respiratory diseases, there was a fairly consistent, you'd see sort of five, 600 cases a year, but they were imports. Now, there's something different between, we know measles still exists all around the world and people are coming in, they're being tested for it, we're seeing it seeing it get here. But when it arrived here, it wasn't taking off. It was like a spark landing in a forest, but the forest is damp and it can't take off. It was determined by the World Health Organization that because of this, Britain had eliminated measles, which meant there was no community transmission. It was still turning up because it was still there, but it wasn't able to transmit in Britain. That lasted till about 2018, and then it started again. And we have, you know, we're talking very low case numbers, to be clear at the moment. The last figures I saw were 216, there'll be more than that confirmed cases, probably 100, 150, so more probable cases. But the issue, the thing that's really worrying the health authorities is these are spreading. They're, they're, they're native cases. They're, they're not being traced back. And in fact, no longer can we trace them back to the individual source. So measles is there and it is bubbling under the surface. And do we know why and, and where in particular? As we speak, it is mainly in the West Midlands, and there it is about 80% in Birmingham, about 20% in Coventry. There are pockets where there are very low vaccination rates, and it's spreading mainly, from what I hear from health chiefs, it's spreading in Muslim populations where they have had very low vaccination rates for all sorts of reasons, and we can go into these. There is elements of vaccine hesitancy, people are worried about side effects of the vaccine. There are Elements that are worried whether the vaccine is halal, there are two versions of the MMR vaccine, one that's made using pork products, one that isn't, so there is a halal version. There are people who've come to the country and simply aren't vaccinated. And then there are cultural reasons of people who are maybe slightly disconnected from the public health establishment. How serious could this get? So the real worry is, I mean, none of this is surprising. The epidemiologists have been watching the very, very slow drop in vaccination rates. Beyond that, the concern is that it spreads from pocket to pocket. And we go from having something that was essentially controlled in the UK to having something that ends up being nationwide. 
you know, there are clearly some factors that are taking place around Birmingham now which are independent, but there is a history of vaccine hesitancy around measles in this country, isn't there? I mean, tell us a bit about Andrew Wakefield and his research. In 1998, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, a doctor then, Andrew Wakefield, he published, along with others, a paper in the journal, The Lancet. Measles, mumps and rubella given together may be too much for the immune system of some children to handle. It involved a small number of children, 12. It was a case series, and it was making a link between the vaccine and then the emergence of autism in children. This caused genuine and understandable concern. The Lancet is a very, very serious journal. I mean, normally it is described as the prestigious journal, The Lancet. Um, And the fact that it was published there was a great worry. I mean, this was only 12 kids, um, but it was something clearly needed to be taken seriously and investigated. And I often think, I wasn't a science journalist at the time, I think, how would I have covered this? I would like to think we would have gone to other experts. I think the other experts would have said, we need more evidence. They wouldn't have said this is rubbish because that wouldn't have been a scientific thing to do. And of course, for parents who don't have time to wait for the research, this can have an instant effect on vaccination rates. Now, actually, the vaccination rates didn't drop massively. They dropped to about 80% rather than the 95% that we needed. Mm. But it took time and there was probably a six-year period in which this was a real concern. Now, the the public health establishment in, instantly kicked into action and you can do things. You can look at population level autism rates. You can correlate them to the vaccine. You can see that there's no apparent link. Then there was the journalistic response, a journalist called Brian Deere in particular, who started investigating this. And what we learned was that secretly, Andrew Wakefield was being paid to find these links on behalf of a solicitor who was planning a class action on behalf of parents. Oh, wow. And what's more, that these weren't 12 randomly chosen kids. They were chosen because the kids had autism and and it was... In order to get in this, it was basically part of the lobbying campaign. As Brian Deere said, parents blaming the shot wasn't a finding at all. It was a secret qualification to take part. So they were part of the campaign. And there were other issues. But of course, you know, whilst this was going on, parents were concerned and it takes a long time to refute something like that. And give us a sense of the concern, the frenzy, because I, you know, I, I seem to remember it was headline news everywhere for a very long time. There were even moments where there were very sort of testy interviews with the prime minister where Tony Blair was being asked if he was giving his own baby at the time the MMR vaccine, his own child the, the MMR vaccine. And it felt like nobody really knew if they could trust it. I think Tony Blair said at the time, I just don't talk about my children's medical records, which is also completely reasonable. But people thought, well, you know, is, does Tony Blair know something else? There were stories after stories, and they're always very compelling. You know, if you're, if you're a newspaper features desk, well, you find someone, you find almost anyone with autism, any baby with autism, because almost any baby has been given the shot. And so there is a vast number of case studies and, you know, they will all come after the baby has had the MMR in the same way as they will all come after the baby has tried bananas. 
And so there was a human story. There were worried parents and there was a scientist at the center of this. And, you know, I, th I think it's reasonable to say in retrospect, you know, journalism has taken a look at itself after this and decided what can we, we do better because we were definitely part of it. Eventually, this theory was discredited. It was completely discredited. Yesterday, a respected British medical journal retracted a study that said the MMR vaccine may trigger autism. This publication, which was wrong, was scientifically implausible, should never have been published to start with. I think what we now know is that the Lancet paper, which was always felt to be bad science, is a deliberate fraud. I mean, you can do the, the population studies are pretty clear that this just isn't happening. Well, a new study confirms there is no link between vaccines and autism. The study was published in the journal Annals of Internal Medicine. Danish researchers analyzed data from more than 650,000 children. Less than 1% of those who received the MMR vaccine were later diagnosed with autism. Together with the things that Andrew Wakefield didn't disclose, the fact he is now in the same way as the journal Lancet is still referred to as prestigious journal Lancet, he is referred to as fraudulent Dr. Andrew Wakefield. You know, this, this, theory, this theory is gone and we started seeing a return of vaccination um, by the early 2010s. And of course, that's what led to the elimination in the UK of measles. So we felt this was very much behind us. Coming up, Andrew Wakefield makes a comeback. That's in just a moment. This weekend, Time subscribers can catch the latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It's our sneaky peek behind the scenes here at The Times, and it's on Apple Podcasts just for subscribers on the Stories of Our Times feed. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts to find out more. Tom, Andrew Wakefield is struck off in this country for his dubious research, but it's not over. It's not over for him. Andrew Wakefield has gone on to have a lucrative niche career amongst the anti-vaxxers of the US. Okay, a couple quick uh, housekeeping notes. There's baptisms tonight. There's baptisms tonight. Again, you can find the details at time2freeamerica.com. And our next presenter, though, started making films about vaccine-related injuries long before COVID-19 and was cancelled by culture for doing it. He's my good friend and now yours. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand to your feet and greet Andy Wakefield! Thank you very much. It's an enormous pleasure to be here. I first came to this country in professional and political exile in 2004. And I came here because I valued the freedoms that this country offered. As we've seen with COVID, you know, there is a large, large enough cohort of people. And it doesn't have to be many. I think we overstate the number of people who are actually anti-vax, but it's a small proportion of a large number of people. So he has a big house. 
Here's a Nice Life. He's made a film called Vaxxed from Cover-Up to Catastrophe. Now, if there's no link between early MMR and autism, those two lines should track together. This is going to be a complete catastrophe if we just let it happen. He's chums with Donald Trump, or at the very least he was at his inauguration ball, so he moves in the right circles for this kind of thing. Tell me something about your relationship with Mr. Trump and his associates. So I met him once when he was running for the presidency. He interjected and said, you don't need to tell me that vaccines cause autism, I've seen it. And we've had so many instances, people that worked for me just the other day, two years old, two and a half years old, a child, a beautiful child, went to have the vaccine and came back and now is autistic. He's doing very well for himself and he's got a lot of people who adore him. And Tom, as journalists, we know that with disinformation, the moment something is out, you can have a hundred pieces explaining why it's wrong, but it's very hard to completely eliminate the idea. And if you suddenly have a huge following in America now, it's even harder. Has the idea persisted? Yeah, it has. And look, it's even journalists using the word disinformation gets people very riled and slightly understandably so, because I get it. It's like, you know, who are we to be the arbiters of the truth? But the fact that the MSM, the mainstream media, are, are riling against this is enough to, to validate it. So th these things are by their very nature, you know, unrebuttable. And did that sentiment, that anti-vax sentiment, did it increase across the board during the pandemic? I think the pandemic shone a light on vaccines in general. A lot of the people who made their name on social media by opposing things like lockdown and then things like the vaccine and testing have pivoted to other vaccines. And so that has definitely happened. I mean, there is an element of that. There's, I think it's probably slightly more complicated, but it's, it's part of the picture. In certain aspects of the population, I think those aspects are quite, those parts of the population are quite small. As I say, we spent a lot of time talking about anti-vax stuff during COVID and justifiably so, but you look at the revealed preferences of people, people are getting the vaccine. So there are people, we, we had a piece in the Sunday Times at the weekend about Somali parents who are worried about a link between vaccines and autism. And some of them might be, you know, they've been to see Vax, they've got the Andrew Wakefield, whatever, Rumble subscription or whatever it is that he, he makes his money on. But a lot of these people, and, and public health officials are keen to stress this, a lot of these people, if you sit down with them, if you treat them with respect, if you understand culturally what's going on, if you have the conversation with them, then they will get the vaccine. In the Somali community, we think there's already a higher incidence of autism. I suppose that might make them more suspicious of the vaccine? Yeah, and people look for links. And we don't know definitively, you know, why there appears to be so many autistic children in Somali families. A lot of this is anecdote that's pulled together by public health fishies. But certainly the link between autism and the vaccine is because often the, the symptoms of autism appear about that time anyway. And, you know, it's very natural in the Somali community that you would think, what does this? And 
if you if you Google it, then you're you're going to get this pop up. This is exactly the sort of thing that pops up, and I think that probably the, the Wakefield theory pop, pops up online. Yeah, and it'll be there in support groups, and people will talk about it, and it'll be WhatsApp messages. I think it's very dangerous to give people a label, and anti-vax has become a label. To an extent, I, it made me uncomfortable during during COVID because it's perfectly reasonable to worry about safety concerns with new medical interventions. And it became, and you know, you could say this is useful, but I'm not sure it was, it became socially unacceptable to say it about vaccines because then you're anti-vax. And I understand why it's a pejorative, but I don't think it's useful to apply pejoratives to people who you want to persuade. And a lot of people are persuadable. And... I would be hesitant about attributing this to either a big rise in anti-vax sentiment or one specific thing like COVID for the simple reason that you can see since before COVID, there was a slow drop, a slow ticking down of vaccine coverage. And it was slow, gradual, steady. And so it's difficult to attribute it to one thing. What are the other factors that might be at play here? It's quite plausible that people are just not considering measles that much of a priority, or maybe it's you know harder to get a GP appointment. What we're seeing is from a peak in perhaps the low 90s, we're now down to about 85% of kids getting both doses. It's really not a big difference, and it, it has been gradual. There's been no cliff edge. So maybe we just need to, as is happening now, up the impetus and up the urgency. We talked about, you know, the effects of Wakefield now. The big effect of Wakefield now, certainly on the modelling and trying to understand what's going on, is that they call them the Wakefield cohort. Kids who were born between 1998 and 2004 who have the lowest vaccine rates that that we have. We're now in a situation where we've got kids, but we've also got young teachers um, because we know that people in their early 20s are members of the Wakefield cohort and could be a way to spread things between these bubbles, these... Because we have temporal bubbles in the sense of these different vaccination rates across time, and we have geographical bubbles in terms of different vaccination rates across groups. Wow. So that Wakefield cohort, that's just a generation who, when it, they would normally have been received their vaccine, the Wakefield story was around, they didn't have it, and they've gone through life and they haven't been vaccinated since. Yeah, and they haven't got measles since because measles has been very low, but they've been there, this continual concern you've got these potential spreaders and you've got these potential pockets of spread. And there's been this sense of it will happen, we don't know when. And part of it is that there is this particular demographic that, yeah, that just didn't get the vaccine. You know, in their more optimistic moments... Public health officials don't talk about the return of measles. They talk about the global eradication of it, like smallpox. On the one hand, it's the most infectious respiratory disease we know of. On the other hand, it's one of the best vaccines we know of. This vaccine provides essentially 100% lifetime protection. That is a vaccine that can destroy measles. And there are global efforts to just get rid of it entirely, because wouldn't that be marvellous?
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times science editor, Tom Whipple. And if you want more Whipple, Tom's latest book, The Battle of the Beams, is now available as an audiobook. It's about the secret science of radar that turned the tide of the Second World War, and it's read by Tom. Do have a listen. We'll put a link in the description. The producers today were James Shield and Taryn Siegel. The executive producer was Kate Ford, and sound design was by Mao Lissetto. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.